with a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George. Welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Good morning and welcome to After 9. I'm your host for today, Eric Allen. So for the next hour, we've got two or three different, what I think are very interesting subjects. My uh, panel today is Don Hemingway, John Zakowski, James Steidel, and Peter Ewart. Don's going to start us off on uh, seniors, uh, senior care. And basically, this is in the province of British Columbia, but Prince George is a good example of pretty well all towns in British Columbia with the fifty to 80,000 population. So I'm absolutely surprised that the uh, federal and provincial governments don't use Prince George as a model for coming up with different ideas across the country because we pretty well got the mix of everything here and uh, certainly uh, would be a good, a good place to uh, maybe do some studies on uh, senior seniors' care and where we're going to be, say, 10 years from now. I'm not going to get into it. It's a really complicated and a long-term <laughs> um, subject, and Don is more or less our in-house uh, expert on it. So she's going to go through and give you an in- idea where we are, uh, where we should be, and where we want to go. When we get through with that, we'll go to uh, John Zukowski and James Steidel. They're going to give us an overview of Wednesday night's council meeting and the, um, well, anyway, they'll get into it. It, it didn't pass. <laughs> the issue The issue of... Uh, of uh, the local newspaper and and uh, publishing it didn't pass, and uh, so there's some people are upset about that. But there's quite a few people that are quite happy with it. So we'll get into that. Then we'll go to Peter and get into uh, uh, another interesting subject. This one he'll talk about is somewhat as what mm-hmm. happened in Maui and the fires, but the, and the fact that how come they didn't have water to fight the fires, but you know, we got a similar situation here. How come we don't have anybody to fight fires? We basically, we watch them. We, we watch them burn from three thousand feet high. Other than some by people on the ground now, but I mean, we fought fires here for a hundred years. Now all of a sudden, it's the greatest, most threatening thing in the world. I don't believe that, but we'll get into that later on. So, mm-hmm. Don, if you want to go ahead, uh, go for it. Okay, thanks, uh, Eric. So. There's so much to say. So I'm just going to try and give a a bit of an overview. Um, In particular, I was going to talk about long-term care. Um, So folks who are living in what used to be called a nursing home, but we call long-term care, long-term care home now. But let me just put that in context because there is the whole question, broader question of seniors' housing. And it begins from the point of, potentially having your own home, to downsizing to an apartment, to maybe um, going into something that we now call independent living, which is uh, usually a complex where there's um, meals available, but you still have your kitchen, so you could cook them yourself. So there's some supports. Then assisted living, and 
also before assisted living, I should say, is also home support. So someone coming to your home periodically as you need it to uh, look after some of the care needs that you might have that you can't do yourself. Then assisted living, and then finally what I'm going to focus on today is long-term care. And most people became very aware of long-term care over the time of COVID because we heard about the horrific situation in long-term care at that time. And I just, um, not that this is the only or main point, but just for people's uh, information, uh, the Canadian Institute for Health Information did some research, and of course it's not complete yet, but at a point during COVID, um, that basically in Canada, uh, long-term care residents accounted for 3% of all the COVID cases but 43% of all the deaths. And so it really, for me, that one stat, and of course there's more and people are still working on them, really puts in perspective um, the importance of looking at what is going on in long-term care. I should say that these things um, that I'm going to talk about uh, in large part are not really new. I mean, they just became the light was shone on them during long-term care, or sorry, during COVID. And um, so having myself worked in long-term care and been involved in lots of um, issues around seniors, I'm quite familiar with the kinds of issues that came out um, during the time of, of COVID. They, there's really, I think... Um, Four main things, If we, I'll go into them a bit more, but one is about staffing, the training, the education, um, the uh, mix of staff, the uh, number of hours that are actually working with um, the older adults who are living in long-term care. Then there's the question of accountability, of standards, um, and monitoring and enforcement. So we... In my view, one of the things that's sorely missing is standards across the province. Well, I could say across the country, but we'll deal with the province. Um, and and st standards that are accountable in terms of reports that are, are consistent across health authorities and that are public so we can find out what's going on. The other really big thing, uh, in my view, is... Um, the role of caregivers, and um, I mean family caregivers, and the residents themselves being listened to and having not just an informal chat with, with staff or with management about things that are going on in long-term care, but actually that there exists legislation and policy that um, requires that um, our long-term care um, homes actually listen to what and have to act on what families are telling them because families still spend an incredible amount of time um, with the uh, folks that are and their relatives or friends who are in long-term care. So the things that we um, wanted to look at, and this is when I say we, um, it's many, many organizations across British Columbia, but in particular, one organization, um, a volunteer, totally volunteer, totally no funding, um, came into being based on family members uh, during COVID, um, staff, um, researchers, advocates, um, to, to really try and look at this question and to advocate for change. 
um, because we've been advocating for change for a long time, but it just hasn't come about. So this really put it on the table. So the, this organization is called Action for Reform of Residential Care, ARC for short. And it started with some families and, and uh, workers on Vancouver Island, actually, during COVID. And they came together to say, we have to do something that gets our voice out there. And they um, came together, and um, some of the researchers that were connected with this, um, uh, this group of families and others uh, came up with um, a really well-documented report called Improving the Quality of Life in Long-Term Care, A Way Forward. And that report is available for everyone to still have a look at. But the things I want to talk about is the uh, issues that they raised in that report. Now, it's way too many issues to go into in detail here. But just to say, one of the, th the things that was important what, that they looked at was the question of the precarity of the workforce in long-term care. Right now, long-term care I is treated more like an institution than a home. And it should be a home. This is potentially, almost always, the last place someone's going to live. And it should be a home atmosphere. Unfortunately, the way we've got it structured, it's very institutional. It's not about quality of life. So you have, um, for example, um, not the kind of staffing, either hours or training, that... Um, or model of care that allows um, seniors to really feel that this is their home and that they get the things that they need, um, not just what we think, you know, breakfast is at 7, lunch is at 12, you know, this is happening then, but not being able to have your life as you want it. Um, one of the things, of course, is the number of hours that st staff are required to spend with residents. And right now, it's supposed to be 3.36 hours a day. Um, but the question is whether those 3.36 hours are there or not, first of all. There's no really good mechanism through all the care facilities to know if that's happening. Uh, we already know that over four hours are, are, are needed, um, but that's not what people are getting. So one of the things that we really want to see is enough staff that they can spend the time that they're supposed to spend. And the staffing question also relates to what staff are being paid. There's issues between long-term care facilities that are um, funded by the province and run by the province or run by the health authorities and those that are funded by the province to some extent but are run privately. And if we look at some of the work that the seniors advocate did around that question, um, we'll see that um, the number of uh, hours of direct care, are, first of all, are not well accounted for, but second, appear to be less in the um, private-funded uh, uh, care facilities. So there's a huge question around making sure that we can see the taxpayers' dollars that are going for resident care are being provided to the residents. The other issue, of course, is the question of staff being rotated from one. In order to get enough hours, you get rotated from one residence to another, which means that the residents don't have consistent care. They don't get to know people because there's different people coming in and out, which is not good for the staff 
but it's also not good for the residents. But in some cases, um, because of uh, contracting out um, uh, and contractors providing staff, there is no consistency. Um, the other thing, of course, is that in terms of the physical environment that exists in the buildings, and we know from COVID that there were questions about uh, air and uh, purifying the air and making sure that there's that kind of circulation. But there's also the question that we still have long-term care, which should be a home where people are in four beds in one room. We should be moving as much as we can and as quickly as we can so that people have their own room. Um, and that's not just important in terms of COVID, but also in terms of having family and friends and just having your own environment. Um, now that's a commitment that is gonna, it's gonna cost some money to be able to do that. But we need to look long range in this. You know, those of us who are the baby boomers, we know that we want somewhere to go that is a quality that we want. And I, I hear way, way too many times from people that I don't want to go there. Like, I hear too much about it. Just do anything but have me in a care facility. It shouldn't be like that. It should be, okay, this is the last portion of my life. I'm going to have a good home. Other things um, is the question of, and I've mentioned it briefly at the beginning, is listening to residents and families about what the needs are. And it's one thing, and we do have family councils now. Um, <clears throat> we have residence councils in some locations. But the issue is to make sure that those councils actually have some, there's some teeth <laughs> um, behind w what they raise and what they say, not just they give some, you know, suggestions and we've given our suggestions. There needs to be a mechanism of enforcement um, in terms of, people's raising issues that need to be listened to but aren't always listened to. And and then there's there is the general question of funding, which it hasn't kept pace with the increase in the aging population and the needs. And then the bigger um, I'll wrap up the sort of broad questions with the bigger question that I raised about housing overall. And we could even go beyond housing. But we need a provincial policy that has not only um, the question of very individually saying, okay, we're going to build more apartments, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. We need a strategy. It has to be looking at apartments, looking at you know independent living, long-term care, assisted living, home support. There has to be a strategy. So to... To um, wrap up about ARC has raised all these questions and right now is um, <clears throat> working on a couple of things in particular to get the voice of the public heard. One is that there is right now a letter writing campaign going on um, to get to our MLAs, to the, to the province, about the need to have all these voices a multi-sectoral, whatever language you want to use, the families, the workers, the, the experts, uh, everybody um, at the table to give the provincial government the information necessary and to push for the changes that are needed. So we're trying to get it so that, and I'm part of ARC, um, of its leadership team. We're trying to get this government to have such an advisory forum um, 
similar to one that they had when they were developing the strategy for the um, p- end of poverty, which of course is not what the strategy is not perfect. I've got lots of problems with it, but there was those voices there that were pushing and pushing, and we need the same thing for this. So that's one thing that we're trying to do. Um, we're also not only trying to get the individual letters, but trying to get all the organizations across the province that support this to also do individual letters. Um, and the thing that I suppose is important that I haven't let you know is how big is this organization. And right now, um, ARC has about 80 um, individual organizations that have signed on to be part of its work. And those that includes things like um, the BC Association of Social Workers, the Nurses Union, HEU, um, all, all sorts of seniors organizations, provincial ones, local ones, family councils. Um, um, up here, I'll give you some examples. The Council of Seniors has signed on, um, a part of a research institute that I'm uh, part of at the university called Northern Fire. It does a lot of women's health research. We've signed on and done letters. Um, also, the uh, School of Social Work at the university has signed on. Uh, Save Our Northern Seniors, which is a little bit north of us here, um, has signed on. So, And then others all across the province. So it's a huge um, group of really concerned citizens that have signed on to take on this work. And that's the the force we think is necessary across the province. We need the voices of all the communities. And we are trying to make sure that that happens through these this mechanism of the letters, through the um, discussion that we're having. We're doing a series of webinars that are open. You don't have to pay. You don't have to register. Just come about all these different issues in long-term care. And the first one is actually on Wednesday. Um, and it is looking at food within long-term care. And one of the dietitians that works there is uh, doing that. So those are some of the things that I can talk to. Okay, <clears throat> there's your overview. I hope you've got most of it. We're going to go for a break now. When we get back, we'll just touch on a few questions for Don, and then we'll move on to the next subject. There isn't much that a country singer hasn't covered in a song. If you want to hear songs about new love, lost love, drinking, fighting, cowboys, trains, traveling, and everything else, then tune into the Country Cavalcade every Wednesday, 6 to 8, where I cover music from the 20s to the 90s, as well as today's traditional independent artists. You'll hear from such greats as the Carter family, Johnny Horton, Vern Charlton, and so much more. The Country Cavalcade, Wednesday, 6 to 8, only here on 93.1 CFIS-FM with me, Corey Walker. If you're totally out of shape, Trainer Kim's has a new fitness class just for you. Created for anyone new or returning to fitness after an extended period, Fitness 101 features slow-paced workouts allowing for proper instruction and form. Breaks are given for recovery and all exercises can be modified to meet every ability. If you are ready to take this first step towards a stronger, healthier body, contact Trainer Kim today by emailing trainer underscore Kim at hotmail.com. Eat healthy and fresh at Homesteader Meats. Founded by Ben and Rosella Clausen in 1982, Homesteader Meats has two premium quality meat and gluten-free products, plus Wednesday is Seniors Day at Homesteader Meats. Seniors 55 and over save 10% off regular prices. Single portions are available in most items, including pierogies and sausages, and there are half-pound packages off ground beef, ground pork, stew meat, 
and meat pies. Everything from Erladen to patties is at Homesteader Meats in two locations, College Heights and Park Hill Centre. Forecast from Environment Canada. Sunny today with local smoke and a high of 24. Tonight clear with local smoke and a low of 8. Tuesday, widespread smoke, a high of 24 with a high UV index. This is After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. Okay, we're back and we're still on the subject of seniors' care. Today, tomorrow, and into the future. Uh, I'm going to get a comment from James to start with. Yeah, I, I, I thanks a lot, Don, for uh, the overview there. Um, you know, I, I think I said this before. I think it's... Uh, this is a huge issue coming down the pipeline, and I think I don't think uh, the way we've set up our communities and our society is is ready to address it properly. I think, um, you know, I think dealing with it on the institutional level is one thing. I think it's very important. All those points Don raised uh, is very critical. But at the, at the on the other hand, it's um, and the thing that comes to my mind is, you know, how do you build a community or a city? that's friendly to seniors and i look around uh what we're how we're growing as a city in prince george and it doesn't seem like uh we've got the long-term view you know like if if uh if you've got to drive um you know if you if you can't drive uh, your options are going to be pretty limited for getting around um you know we, we don't really have kind of eyes on the street uh where if you're a senior citizen, like in, in places like maybe in Montreal or, or more compact cities, you can go for a little walk in your neighborhood and talk to people, and, and you might have more young people in, in the neighborhood to keep you company and, and hang out with. You know, I think when you look at these kind of suburban deserts, I call them, where you've just got uh, automobile-dependent uh, big big houses spread out all over the place it's kind of hard to make friends or talk to your neighbors have people look after you so i i just want to point out that i think that's that's a, a big issue as far as the specifics of uh, long-term care I actually had a, a really good friend that um that worked as a care aide in, in long-term care and uh yeah it's uh i mean if we had guys like him working i think we'd have a lot less a uh, lot less of these issues he he made friends with a lot of his his uh people that he worked with he you know he'd share stories with me about uh, how they were getting on and and you know he seemed to enjoy his job and i think it's good to have people like that in in long-term care who are there uh, providing company and um, hanging out with people and uh, making it feel like a home as, as don said you know we don't want to we don't want these things to feel like some kind of like your ward of the state in these places uh yeah that's that's kind of my two cents on that Thanks, James. Peter, you got a comment on that? Uh, yeah, you know, when we look at this whole issue, uh, you know, you have a baby boom generation that is, uh, you know, coming right into the ages where uh, people are having to look at long-term care and, uh, and other things, other strategies in terms of uh, where they're at. Um, the report, uh, Improving Quality of Life in Long-Term Care, like as, as Don and J- James has pointed out, uh, uh, anyway, lays out some things here, and I'm just going to quote uh, from one part of the report where it talks about the current situation, and it says current conditions in long-term care are not providing residents with the dignity and quality of life they deserve or are promised. Many facilities in our province are older, have a poor layout, and are overcrowded. Layout of older facilities combined with lack of equipment, upkeep, and overcrowding contributed to the spread of COVID-19. 
Beyond the physical condition, staff are increasingly expected to care for seniors with a wide variety of needs, such as those with dementia, debilitating illnesses, mental health issues, challenging behaviors, substance use, and severe psychiatric illnesses, among other things. You know, so, you know, we're dealing with a really serious problem here that's coming to a head, right? You know, especially as the baby boom generation uh, gets into their 70s and 80s and and 90s, right? So uh, I think one of the things... um, that the report lays out that uh, I think is very uh, useful is that what is necessary given this situation, given the problems that exist in long-term care, that we need a paradigm shift uh, embedded in an ethical framework uh, that is needed that recognizes and addresses the systemic structural factors that continue to hold British Columbia back from developing a high-quality long-term care system that enables each resident to live their best life possible. You know, so I, I think the report is important in that front there, you know, talking about w- what's necessary and, and where we have to have it. We, we fundamentally have to have a paradigm shift to deal with this issue. Okay, John, you got a comment on that? I believe Don wanted to chime in. <laughs> <laughs> John, go ahead. Well, no, really it was actually following James um, because – of course, there's all these other questions. So the neighborhood question and being able to, you know, live a good life in a neighborhood, that, that is not, that's not something that we're dealing with well either. And I just wanted to say that there is a, a study that has been going on called Demscape, which isn't, is fo- focused on folks who are at early stage dementia who are still living in the community and wa- doing walkthroughs with them in Prince George to see what do they need, what, you know, so, so those questions for everybody is still really, um, huge. No question about it. Um, and I also wanted to underline about James talking about his friend. I am not suggesting that there are no good things happening in any care facility. There are good things. We need to amplify those. We need to be able to use those as examples where things are going well so that we can deal with the places where things are not going well. There's good-hearted people working in long-term care who want to be there. Um, but the, the circumstances, as Peter talked about, the systemic issues, the structure of things, makes it very difficult. If you don't have enough staffing hours to be able to hang out with someone and really get to know them, do more than just give them their lunch, um, it's really challenging. So, I mean, there is variation, and we should learn about where these um, good examples are and look at how s- what systemic changes are needed in order to facilitate that for everyone. These are such big questions. Mm-hmm. John? Yeah, I, I agree. There's, uh, there seems to be a fundamental change when it comes to uh, long-term care and, and care for seniors in general. Um, a few generations back, it was uh, a case of children looked after parents Uh, I mean the parents raised the children the children did their thing then that point in time shifted where the parents needed to be looked after so family looked after family but as we've seen over time there's been a breakdown in that unit Mm -hmm. um, as with uh, no longer separated and divorced families this that and the onus of responsibility has shifted there's only one child left or you know, there's there's eight kids in the family, and two only care about mom and dad. The rest are out building their own lives. Yeah. 
So we have to have a system in place where the workers in these facilities are working in one facility. As you mentioned, Don, that familial relationship you build with a person that's rendering aid to you, uh, that, that comfort factor, it should be just like that of, of your, your child or your kids yeah. coming to visit you. It should be, it should be fun. Uh, we've got to make some changes. Okay, we're going to go through a break now. I'll have a few more words on this subject, then we're going to change subjects. Uh, time's moving right on. Have you ever had a great garden one year and wanted to keep the seeds for the next year to try and duplicate the results? The downtown branch of the Public Library is offering a seed-saving workshop on August 26th to help you out. Offered in partnership with the Prince George Master Gardeners and the David Douglas Botanical Garden Society, this is a free drop-in session aimed at adults. The Seed Saving Workshop, August 26th from 1 to 2.30 at the downtown branch of the Prince George Public Library. Lace up your runners and join the Parkinson Superwalk. For over 30 years, this event has helped to raise funds and inspire hope for over 15,000 people across the province living with Parkinson's disease. Together, we can ensure every person touched by Parkinson's has the support they need to live well. Show your support by joining the Parkinson's Superwalk at 11.30 Saturday, September 9th in Clayton-Lay-Tanay Memorial Park. To register or donate, visit parkinson.ca slash superwalk. At Deb's Cafe and Specialty Bakery, we ask numerous diabetics to monitor their blood sugar after enjoying our baked goods and then share the results with us. Some said blood sugar went up, but the change was so mild it was irrelevant. Several said their blood sugar was unchanged, and several others showed us their blood sugar actually went down after eating our baked treats. If you're diabetic, check us out for yourself. You'll love our baking. At Deb's Cafe on 7th and Quebec, next to Pharmasave. Are you a leader who wants to take their leadership to the next level? Do you have an emerging leader on your team who needs support? At Pivot Leader, our Leaders in Business program combines leadership training with one-on-one coaching to help leaders just like you. You'll learn how to deal with people better, handle conflict, hire and keep staff, delegate more effectively, read financial statements, and learn coaching skills to move your team along. There's a less stressful way to improve your outcomes. We can show you how. If you'd like to be a better leader, reach out to us today at pivotleader.com. Pivot Leader will help you grow, train, and sell your business. You're listening to After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. Okay, we're back, and we're going to finish off this subject and move on. I just want to make a few uh, comments. Uh, you know, most of the problems that we have in Canada today are, in my opinion, a consequence of misdirected funding or misdirection of tax dollars. And it's ingrained right in our psyche now that we don't even know that we're into it. But I was talking to some people the other day in regards to how long it would take to finish off their uh, proposal for the downtown uh, revitalization of downtown. So they look at maybe a skating rink, maybe a, a performing arts center, and taking a perfectly good civic center and tearing it all to hell and rebuilding it. I'm just popping a number off my head, $80 million. And uh, they can have this all done within five years. No problemo, man. We'll be out there, we'll have shovels in the ground, we'll have cameras clicking, people cutting tape, and we're good to go. And uh, that's sort of the way it is. Money is no object. But if you talk about street people and the problems getting housing for the homeless, or now that we're into seniors, uh, 
Nobody wants to talk about it. There's no funding available. We don't have any funding. And, and the biggest problem we have is two or three political parties fighting each other to get the headlines to get reelected. Mm-hmm. And th- they throw the money at whatever issue works. So we now have a situation where I'm paying for people to have children, to raise their children, $600 if they're under five or uh, over, yeah, under five, $500 a month if they're over five times three if you got three kids. It's a pretty substantial amount of money. Now, I heard one person comment that he's just going to take that money, put it in the bank to pay for his child's education. Isn't that interesting? So, But he's not paying for it. I am. You see, that's the problem. It's his responsibility as a parent when he had that children to make allowances to pay for his children's education. It's not to have somebody elected to get me to pay for it. Now, we've had this argument with schools. Why should I pay school tax when I don't have any kids going to school? And I don't agree with that one because it's for the better, the better good. But these are getting down into isolated instances. Somebody else says, well, you know, myself, if you can cook and you can shop and you know how to save a dollar, you don't need $1,500 a month to raise a kid. In fact is, if I had that much money, to raise kids, I could make I could make a profit on it, just on feeding them, just by cooking my hamburger at home for a change. But anyway, I'm you know I'm getting off on the line here. But what I'm trying to say is, if we want to solve the senior problem that's now coming on us fast, because we've ignored it for 25 or 30 years, we have to change how we tax people. We have to change where the tax dollars are designated, and it can start right at the payroll where they do with income tax or something. It could be a tax set aside for funding for these types of programs. And uh, and and it can't be tampered with by the different political parties getting uh, elected because that's what they do if you give them the chance. James. Yeah, I, I've said a number of times on here before about the CPP. You know, and as a self-employed individual, I, I pay into the CPP, and, and you really kind of... It really uh, stares me right in the face how inequitable it is uh, that your contributions to CPP stop at uh, $54,000 a year. Uh, so you can be earning, um, you know, a $100 million income. You're, you're paying the same into the CPP as somebody's earning $50,000. So it's at that point from where you're earning, like, between, you know, $25,000 and $50,000, that, that that becomes a huge chunk of your annual uh money that you pay to the uh, federal government i'd like to see that be made more progressive and there shouldn't be a limit on income i think i think you should contribute to cpp uh up to the full amount of income that you earn yeah but uh, go ahead Don. just uh, just one thing on this before we move on um folks might want to look at the uh one of the reports of the seniors advocate called a billion reasons to care and um, looking at what happens to our tax dollars in relation to the government funded um uh, long-term care doesn't matter if it's private where they get government funding or whether it's a totally public institution but they look at the spending and care homes in not-for-profit sector spend 59% of the revenues on direct care versus 49 in the for-profit sector not-for-profit homes spend 9% of revenue on building expenses versus 20% in the for-profit and the for-profit homes generated 12 times the amount of profit generated in the not-for-profit sector. So 34.4 million versus 
2.8. Anyway, she's got a whole bunch of information that she did looking at um, the the, uh, long-term care sector that is funded by public dollars, not the ones that are totally private. There is no information on those Mm. in here, but a billion reasons to care. You may want to have a peek at it. Yeah, and just another thing there that, you know, if you're one years old or 16, there's no, no politician. I don't even give the younger ones a kiss to get a vote, but there's no one paying any attention to that demographic. And in 65 to 75, they kind of concentrate on that because that's the demographic that both votes the most. So they get some attention. Beyond 75, they gave you a maid. They give you a way out, oh. and they can save money if you kill yourself. Commit suicide or whatever, it's legal. Used to be against the law, so I don't like any of this stuff they're doing. We should be able to do this. It's, it's the country itself should be the big family, looking after those areas that need to be looked after, and then the rest of it go out and make a million dollars. Who cares? But let's deal with the real down-to-earth specific things that need to be dealt with. Not this. You know, I'm getting sick and tired of people doing nothing except whatever is required to get elected to get the big job, the big pension, and the big eagle trip around town. We don't even have a parade now that they can walk in the parade and wave their hands. <laughs> yeah, we got to fix that up, Eric. Yeah, you yeah you're so so right about that. We need long-term plans and not plans based on, oh, God, the elections next year. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, we're going to switch off of that and go back to <clears throat> another uh, entertainment uh, we have in town, but it's free admission. That's City Hall. <laughs> <laughs> There's lots of stuff goes on there that makes you laugh, <laughs> and sometimes it makes you cry. So, this one we had the other day is we're going to go for a break. We're going to take a break first, and then uh, we'll be at City Hall. Summer isn't quite over yet, but Two Rivers Gallery has registration available for their fall programs. Favorites like art disco and Saturday morning art classes return. Also, there's intro to life drawing and modeling, a brand new free class, and so many more exciting programs to keep you busy during the harvest months. Find the full list of classes and programs for children, families, youth, and adults under Learn and Engage at tworiversgallery.ca. Two Rivers Gallery, where creativity flows in Canada Games Plaza. The Prince George Council of Seniors Better at Home program needs volunteers. If you're able to assist seniors in our community needing help with grocery shopping or some light housekeeping, contact Wendy, the Prince George Council of Seniors Better at Home coordinator, at 250-564-5888, and she'll help you with the process. It's all designed to help seniors remain independent. Better at Home from the United Way and your Prince George Council of Seniors. Call the Seniors Resource Center to get involved. Prince George-based artist Emily Watson takes you on an uncanny road trip along Highway 16 with Up Around the Bend at Two Rivers Gallery. On through October 1st, Up Around the Bend explores the transitional space between the urban and the wild, considering the complicated presence of humanity within the natural world, and takes a new approach to the tradition of Canadian landscape painting. Check out Up Around the Bend through October 1st at Two Rivers Gallery, where creativity flows in Canada Games Plaza. Forecast from Environment Canada, sunny today with local smoke and a high of 24. Tonight, clear with local smoke and a low of 8. Tuesday, widespread smoke, a high of 24 with a high UV index. Keeping you up to date on current news and events in and around Prince George. This is After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Okay, we're back. And uh, we're going to talk about the uh, bylaw that they wanted to amend Mm -hmm. at the Wednesday city meeting. And uh, city council meeting, 
and it didn't it didn't pass uh, the amendment was put forward by the mayor and then I think Bennett put an amendment to the amendment and then they got rid of that amendment and then they didn't pass the amendment so that's where the humor comes from reminds me of who's on first but uh, anyway two people that were in attendance at the meeting John Zukowski and James Steidel are going to kind of give us their take on it hopefully not too biased or watch their language or something. We, we don't want to get too carried away here. Uh, I'll, ta- I'll start with James. Yeah, actually, I didn't. I didn't see John there at the meeting. I think uh, I think he probably made the right choice and watched it uh, online at home there. That's right, uh, and and uh, probably for good reason because he, he was probably yelling and screaming. Uh, as it's uh, as a few people were in the audience uh, where I, I was there. There's a little bit of uh, heckling going on and. Um, yeah, I, I sat through the whole thing. I think they must have debated for close to two hours on this thing. Um, and at the end of the day, they decided, nope, we're not going to support uh, these public notices in the newspaper. And, you know, from looking at it from without even looking at the politics or, or anything, it just seemed it was kind of sad, really. It was it seemed like kind of disrespectful to the mayor. You know, this is the mayor's first big thing that he puts forward. I think it had a really good rationale to it. And we saw six people twisting themselves in knots to not support it, uh, with very uh, poor reasons, I might add. Uh, I just want to get into a little bit of the background here. This all kind of sprang into being a year ago when the provincial government changed some of the legislation in a community charter that said uh, if a municipality does not have a print media in town, they have uh, they have the authority to use alternative means of no- notification, which would be on online through Facebook uh, and or other social media avenues. And Prince George jumped on this, and actually, specifically, Councillor Kyle Sampson jumped on this. He led the charge back on June thirteenth, in twenty twenty two. This is the meeting where it all got started. If you read that article uh, that Hannah Peterson wrote in the Prince George Citizen, it kind of she just talks about the August meetings where the bylaw was finalized but the the uh the ball got rolling there on june 13th and i'd suggest uh you go and watch that video john uh sat down and and uh put it on youtube it's about a 10 minute video you can watch it basically the whole rationale for getting rid of these public notices was it was costing us hundred thousand dollars a year in taxpayer dollars to put those important public notices in the newspaper and you know that was too much money according to his argument uh, when you had better ways to get the message out online and there's a really choice quote there from julie rogers she's our director of communications there in city hall she said uh, the newspaper can tell us how many papers they print the newspaper can't tell us how many of those newspapers were used for fire starter which i you know just as my opinion it sounds a little bit derisive towards our the importance of our local paper so the whole rationale for getting rid of the the public notices in the paper was that we could get the word out better on social media now Mayor Simon Yu, when he brought this motion in last week, the whole argument was, you know, after a year of having this thing in, a lot of people aren't happy with this. A lot of people, senior citizens, might not have be on Facebook. They might not have access to the Internet. You know, and you can put stuff on the Internet for free, right? So really the public notices in a newspaper, that's just an, an additional level of notification. 
that people who don't have the internet can access that can get distributed to your to your door and i think one of the big important points that was missed at that whole meeting is the historical record uh, this is probably the biggest public service you get from these public notices is once it's printed that ain't going anywhere okay you've got thousands of newspapers out there with this public notice and somebody's going to save it the newspaper the citizen will save it they'll have it in their archives and that will go down in history uh as the public notice that was that was advertised on maybe a pub land sale uh you know some kind of rezoning decision this or that it's in a historical record. That is something very, very important that you cannot discount. And we just tossed all that away and argued that, nah, none of that matters. Actually, they didn't even mention that stuff. Uh, basically, it's all about uh, how to get the message out the best and who cares that our media is struggling and we might lose our newspaper. Um, so I, I feel that there is really good reasons to keep these notices in a local paper. Uh, these, these reasons weren't given the proper time and day. And... We spent two hours arguing over $100,000, which is $2 per taxpayer per year, okay? And then and then we turned around and spent, what, maybe two minutes debating uh, paving the parking lot at the end of uh, Foothills Drive there, which which probably would have paid for newspaper ads for another uh, five years. So anyway, it, would just, it just seemed like a really, and John will get into this more and maybe summarize what I'm trying to say here a little bit better, but... It, it it seemed like a, an act of cruelty, to be honest, against our local press, our local journalism. Uh, it seemed like it was pettiness. It seemed uh, there's vindictiveness. Okay, there was no. It was a pointless argument that these guys were making. The six city councilors who voted against it. Um, yeah. Anyway, sorry, I'm talking, rambling on too long here. Go ahead, John. Well, yeah, James, you're you're dead on the, the spot there. Um, I'm going to come out and just just call it the way it is uh this was a shot at the citizen newspaper in in my humble opinion uh the citizen is an active reporting newspaper they are in prince george they have been in prince george for decades um meta facebook google um ask ask somebody at business licenses whether or not either of those entities has paid for a Prince George business license. I can assure you they haven't. The Prince George citizen has paid for a business license in Prince George for decades. So this was a shot at the citizen because they did investigative reporting, exposed a lot of stuff that was going on within City Hall. What better way to teach them a lesson, yank some of their funding. Then there's the optics. The optics is the twist of calling it advertising. No, it's not advertising. It is a required legislative uh, issue that they must post public notices in the local paper. Uh, if, if this comes down to a legal challenge, and I'm not a lawyer, but if it was to come down to a legal challenge, the city will lose. And us having a risk-adverse city manager, you'd think you'd think about that before uh, pulling this kind of move. But, yeah, this was all about teaching the citizen a lesson, taking away a bunch of money, and hopefully maybe they'll dry up and blow away. Well, that isn't the case. The citizen is going to be here. They've been here for decades. They'll continue. Uh, so bottom line is this, is, this is the administrative caucus pulling a fast one. And I'm pretty sure if this were legally challenged, they would be forced to turn around and put those public notices in the paper. Well, I, I'm going for a break. I'll go for a break, and then I'll give you my two bits worth. 
The outside main entrance to CNC is going through a renewal and reconstruction project to improve its worn infrastructure. While the main entrance is closed, access to the main campus is available through the west entrance located between the dental building and gym. Large signs are in place to guide students, staff and visitors around the construction site to alternate entrances and exits. More information is available at cnc.bc.ca and on the CNC social media accounts. Handy Circle Resource Society is celebrating 25 years with a can-do event. Join in the fun with bingo, music from the Elastic Band, dinner, dancing, karaoke, other entertainment, and loads of prizes. Tickets are just $20, available by calling the Handy Circle Resource Society at 250-563-1852. Buy your tickets before August 20th for the chance in the early bird draw. The Handy Circle Resource Society's can-do social event, September 16th at the Civic Center. The Spruce Capital Senior Center is busy with activities Tuesday through Thursday through September 11th. Take part in Canasta on Tuesdays and Thursdays, Fun Bridge on Tuesdays, and Bingo each Wednesday. Be sure to sign up for their monthly tournaments for crib and pool. Note, there is a $2 drop-in fee for the weekly events. The Spruce Capital Senior Center, across from Rainbow Park, at the corner of Rainbow Drive and Liard Drive. Amanika Arts Centre has plenty of opportunities for you to get involved with the local art scene. Apply to join their board, volunteer, or just become a member. The not-for-profit artist-run centre operates under a working board with both volunteers and board members contributing to the growth of our arts and culture community. Become an Amanika Arts Centre member to join their group of artists, art enthusiasts, and supporters of the arts. Full details on the board, volunteering, and memberships are available through amanikaartscentre.com. It's after 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. Okay, we're back, and this one, I can see why it can be contentious, because it's getting a little that way here. But anyway, uh, <clears throat> I don't agree with John that the, if they went to court that the uh, city would lose the case. Firstly, it came out from the provincial government that they're allowed to do that. So that eliminates any legal responsibility on the city on a local level to do it. Secondly, the, uh, they're also allowing you to, well, the long-term plan is to send that information to you if you have email. So there's 33,000 people at home that pay taxes. They've already got your email. It's only a matter of time. You'll get all this information on your email. And if people run true to firm, the first thing they'll do if it's a, a zoning bylaws, they'll delete it. Because who reads them anyway? They're the most boring thing in the newspaper. First thing I do when I see a zoning bylaw, usually, unless it's Ginter's Green or something where there's a controversy, you just turn the page. Because Joe Citizen in Lot A wants to raise his fence six feet, and there's a complaint from Joe Citizen in, in Lot C. It's not stuff that you go looking for. I go looking for the funny papers. It's more interesting. And Facebook, like I said before, that's that's a gossip column. That's not a news column. Who gets their news from Facebook? Only because they're too tired to go and put in there the Guardian or Globe and Mail and get it from where it was actually written. They're just transferring it to Facebook and they take the easy way out. So I don't buy that. I think that I always remember this article. I don't know if Peter ever read it. Where in China there thousand years ago or 500 years ago they'd walk 10 miles to read the newspaper that's nailed to a board on a fence and it's been there for two years and they still walk that far to read it 
just to get the news. And we can't walk down to City Hall or go to City Hall or even ask somebody, they'll send it to you, you know. The people that they're supposedly protecting don't exist. That's my opinion. Peter? Uh, all I would just say is that uh, I think the the decision by city council is a is a mistake. It doesn't it doesn't move uh, you know the whole issue of local journalism ahead. You know, like the, the the problem of local journalism is all over the place. You know, given what's happened with the technological developments and so on, so the local media is uh, is under a, a lot of uh, pressure and in many cases where, where it doesn't even exist anymore. And so the, this decision by city council there doesn't move things ahead, and instead it moves things backwards, right? So that would be my concern about this whole issue, that uh, uh, it's not uh, moving ahead, uh, the, you know, the issue of local journalism in any serious way. In fact, it's uh, going against it. Well, firstly, uh, the local people, citizens, not local. It's Glacier News. It belongs to one of the biggest news conglomerates in Canada, for sure. And they're basically told what they'll do and when they'll do it and who they'll do it for. But it's, having said that, they can, we can have a good, strong local newspaper. But if they didn't change the legislation from printed and just left it with digital, then you could do it anywhere. Mm -hmm. The citizen, I think, is trying to hang on with that once a week <coughs> printed paper because they're the only ones in the northern interior that prints it. And so that for gives them an advantage of getting that that uh, payment from the city, whereas they go totally digital. Like in all the con uh, discussion I've heard so far, I haven't heard anybody mention. Well, maybe we should give it to PG Daily News. They come out seven days a week. They have a daily newspaper. Why don't we just put it in there in the digital and get it maybe for half price? Because that's not where they want it to go. Otherwise, they would have said that. So. Yeah, I, I think uh, the the point about the uh, the legislation change. I think the the point that John was making there about uh, about holding up in court. I mean, the, the legislation says if you don't have a newspaper, a printed newspaper, you can go to the online thing. Well, we still have a printed newspaper, so uh, I think I think that's where the challenge would come in. Uh, I, I want to echo Peter's point here about uh, funding journalism in general. There was a a point that Councillor Sampson made there that. You know, if this is about funding journalism, if if the issue is Bill C eighteen that has basically cut off uh, news from Facebook, which is a whole other topic of discussion, then we should call. Then we should have an own, our own uh, journalism grant system set up, uh, where we fund journalism through some kind of internal, you know, bureaucratic granting process. And you know, that wasn't the rationale why we got rid of these advertisements last year. It was all about saving money. Um, but now I guess it's okay to spend money on journalism through a granting process. Uh, and I just want to point out that argument kind of doesn't really hold water because you want to, you want to basically, we're going to have to hire more city staff to administrate this thing. You know, and we're talking about a small amount of money. We're talking about a hundred thousand dollars that went to keep our printed newspaper. What happens if the internet goes down? I think it might come in handy one day that we still have a printing press that can actually print physical copies of a newspaper, which I mentioned, you know, kids stand will stand in the historical record. We don't know if stuff that's printed online will exist in five years from now. It could all disappear. No, it'll uh, be online. But you don't, you don't know that. Yeah. You know, these, these, no. the, the systems that, that maintain all this data can disappear. It can get hacked. Okay. So I think having a printed, ver uh, printed paper is critical to maintain, a, maintain that infrastructure. And it's just an easy, quick 
way to do it. You don't have to pro- create a whole new process, a whole new bureaucratic process and, and wrap up all this journalistic funding with a bunch more red tape. Just give some money to the new, the local newspaper and print these public notices that are required by law. I know, I know that they're boring, but there is critical stuff that gets published in their land sales. Okay. Information on public land sales gets published. That's, that's critical stuff. Maybe, maybe nobody cares, but, uh, that could be information that, that might uncover a pretty significant scandal at some point. So I disagree with you, Eric. I think it's very important to have that funding for the, the local paper and, and hopefully we get our wits back and, uh, get back to funding what's important. I think now with newspapers, they, they print that newspaper so cheap, and it's really cheap. I think the lifespan of a printed newspaper that can be read is about seven years, and it just dies away. It's just it's just all done all the cheap. So, um, well, they got the old newspapers there at that uh, pancake place on on Victoria from the mid '60s. Yeah, Still that's when it was high priced newspaper. They don't make quality. that anymore. They no. buy the cheapest paper to cut their costs. And then now it doesn't stand up. It just doesn't last. Books in the library, the same problem. If a book's 10 years old, it's pretty well shot because it's on cheap paper. Everything is on the cheap now to save money for what? For high salaries. Well, we should what be, else? We should be shot getting the best quality local pulp. I mean, we've got the pulp mills here in town. And we got a printing press in the museum. If we really need one, we can do it by hand. We need a, a typesetter. I think the question really um, of local media is the one that we should talk about sometime because all levels of local media, including the the program we're on right now on CFIS, I think having local media that is not um, glacier media is really an important question. How can yes. we have truly local media? So I'd love to see us talk well, about I that. Mean, we got we got uh, it's owned by Glacier, but let's be let's be honest here. Neil Godbout does a pretty good job of uh you know maintaining editorial independence and you know we get a lot of local perspectives in that paper that's that's not nothing no no and i agree with you on that i'm just saying i'd like to see a, a broader discussion about local media yeah oh for sure okay yeah. we're gonna have to wind things up we didn't get to peter with his uh, issue but that's good because it's a good issue and i want to get into it in more detail so instead of giving them two minutes next week we'll give them ten <laughs> <laughs> so you actually picked up eight minutes peter I want to thank everybody for listening. Thank the panel for coming in. We got through this without getting too far off light. And uh, it's an issue that is going to be around for a while because it's contentious. So thank you very much.